This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Roxana Espos, Palace Shaw, and Light Ali, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. We typically begin each episode with a poem. I remember in episode number 23, we recorded one of my favorite poets, Mahmoud Darwish from Palestine. The poem was Identity Card, 1964. And I asked a Palestinian friend of mine what poems she loved of Darwish, and she sent me excerpts from several. So I'm going to read from Mahmoud Darwish's catalog just a few lines. Nothing is harder on the soul than the smell of dreams while they're evaporating. And I tell myself, a moon will rise from my darkness. We are captives of what we love, what we desire, and what we are. We suffer from an incurable malady, hope. A person can only be born in one place. However, you can die several times elsewhere in the exile, in prison, and in a homeland transformed by the occupation and oppression into a nightmare. Every beautiful poem is an act of resistance. After the poem, we typically do a free write, a time to either meditate or pause the podcast and actually write some words on a page, just freely, without editing, um, just whatever comes to your mind in response to a prompt. So pause the podcast for a minute and consider these beautiful lines that I just read, and then think about or write wildly about how you intend to perform an act of resistance and write a beautiful poem today, tomorrow, this week, or this year. Okay, pause the podcast. We'll be right here when you come back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. We're bombarded with relentless and punishing propaganda that places the U.S. at the epicenter of the whole wide world. We're the exceptional nation, the propaganda says, the indispensable nation, the most remarkable people who've ever lived, a shining beacon on a hill to the lesser nations. This propaganda, so unremitting, becomes an American common sense, and there's nothing more dogmatic and insistent than common sense. But notice that this particular American dogma separates us from humanity. It encourages us to see a selective humanization and sets up a hierarchy in which some human beings are more worthy of recognition, more worthy of care, more worthy of support than other human beings. 
If freedom is our horizon, we have to reject all forms of selective humanization, and we have to become active internationalists. This isn't easy for Americans. It requires a conscious effort to open your eyes, to resist the propaganda, to see the world large, and then to reach out in solidarity. Overcoming American nationalism, American exceptionalism, American blindness can take many forms, many turns. But at different historical moments, some freedom struggles have emerged to focus the world's attention. At one point, every internationalist everywhere, whatever else they did, had to have Vietnam in their sights. At another point, South Africa demanded everyone's attention. Today, whatever else we do, Palestine must be in our hearts, our minds, and our work. I urge you to return to episode number 23, Free Free Palestine, with Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Middle East Studies at Columbia University. And episode number 41, Hope is a State of Mind, with Dima Khalidi, founding director of Palestine Legal. And episode 77 was called Stranger in My Own Land with Fida Giris, author, activist, organizer, who we spoke to in her home in the Galilee. Today, we're joined by Destiny Phillips, Beth Iwano, and Eliza Gonring, three comrades from Chicago who journeyed to Palestine to study, to learn, and to join hands in our common struggle against settler colonialism. So I'm going to push it back to Roxana and let her take over co-hosting today. Roxana. Hi, I'm Roxana Espose, and I'm co-hosting Under the Tree podcast today because Bill's not in the studio with us. Bill, why don't you tell us where in the world you are? Well, Bernadine and I are driving back from the wilderness of California. We've been on the road for two full days. We're exhausted, but we raced as fast as we could to get to a town called Oglala, Nebraska. And we're here at Oglala in a subway. There might be some free, you know, freaky noises and stuff in the background, but I wanted to be on with y'all. And we made this date a long time ago, so we're happy to be here. I want to say one thing about Oglala. Oglala is, of course, named for the Oglala Sioux. And we just passed Julesburg, which is a town in Nebraska. And if they've never read the book Crazy Horse by Murray Sandoz, it is a brilliant, brilliant book, a, a biography, really, of the Oglala leader, um, Crazy Horse. And there's a lot you should read, obviously, about the taking of this land, the genocide, the land theft. Certainly Roxanne uh, Dunbar Ortiz, it, you know, an indigenous people's history of the United States, which kind of is apropos of us talking about Palestine tonight. But the other thing is um, Raul Peck's film, his TV series called Exterminate All the Brutes. But if you get a chance, put this on your book list. Mari Sandoz, S-A-N-D-O-Z, Crazy Horse, the biography of the strange man of the Sioux. And it's really a beautiful, beautiful book. And I read it last summer driving through here. Now here we are again. So my land acknowledgement is this is Sioux territory where I'm coming from. And uh, we have to remember that this is stolen land that we're occupying we have to do all we can to repair that fix. So let's just start at the beginning. Y'all went to Palestine. Eliza, why don't you tell us who you went with and when you went? 
Yeah, so we traveled in March, I believe, early March, early to mid-March. Um, we were there for a week, and we traveled with, uh, I always say that I was like the plus one to someone's plus five, I think. Um, so <laughs> we traveled as the Real Youth Initiative contingent, but we were invited by a law student um, on NYU Law School's chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine. Um, and then the travel company we were traveling through was Paltrek, which is uh, short for Palestine Trek. And, and what was the motivation? Why did you all want to go? That's a big, long trip, and it's probably exhausting as well as expensive. And, and yet it was important for you to go with the Real Youth Initiative. We've talked about the Real Youth Initiative in the past. Uh, Destiny is one of the co-founders of that organization. Parentheses, Real Youth Initiative is abolitionist group that wants to put an end to juvenile prisons in Illinois and eventually America and eventually throughout the world. But Destiny, um, pick that up. I mean, uh, you all went. Um, why, why make the effort in this particular way, in this place? Mm -hmm. Well, first, I want to say the opportunity was granted through a friend of Tommy's um, that go to um, New York. I mean, that, that attends the college in New York, and that was a part of the Pale Track group. So one, it wouldn't have been possible without, without him. <laughs> um, but I took the opportunity to go to not only build relationships with people in Palestine, but to also seek firsthand understanding of the things that the Palestinians are enduring. Um, and of course, build relationships, build solidarity and be in community with them as well to let them know, like, you know, you're not going through this alone, no matter how many miles away we are. We still here in America, in the U.S., in Chicago, fight similar situations. All right. It's a big, big world. And you all chose Palestine. And you chose it, obviously, in solidarity with this NYU uh, group, Solidarity with Palestine. But, but speak specifically about Palestine. Maybe, Beth, say a word about why, at this moment, Palestine. Sure. Well, we're also part of a longer tradition of solidarity tourism in Palestine, um, and it's a political tactic. It's an anti-colonial tactic. So we're, we're kind of carrying the torch of a larger tradition, um, and I think the moment calls for it right now. We went um, at a moment that, I mean, is part of the moment right now. I guess the moment calls for it right now because we're in a, in a moment of heightened violence towards Palestinians um, in the larger in the larger trajectory of settler colonial violence and um, and erasure of Palestinian people. Um, and I think each of us have different experiences that have brought us to this moment of, of wanting to build solidarity and community with people in Palestine. Um, but for me personally, I think being a young person who grew up in New York as a Jew, there's a lot that I feel like I've learned through my own family through like religious spaces I've been a part of and also through the culture we live in. That's just not true about the narrative behind who are Palestinians, what are the claims to land, what is the reason why Israel exists, period. And I think all of us have work to do to, to kind of unlearn 
what we've both passively and maybe not to passively learned. Um, and that takes intention and going to Palestine is one way to kind of create a base of understanding that builds on what we've read, what we've kind of heard. Um, but now we have people, places, and experiences to really point to and say, this is what's going on. These are relationships that hold that meaning. And these are people who carry forward um, the Palestinian existence despite its denial. You mentioned settler colonial violence. And I think, um, and you said you kind of grew up with a lot of, uh, a lot of the myths. What are some of the myths that people in this country have about um, about Israel, Palestine? And, uh, I mean, I, I know it's been a long time because um, we tend to just take our government's word for things. But what are some of the myths that you think it's important that we expose? I think one that I've been fed on repeat is that it's too complicated to understand and therefore it's better to keep our hands off the entire issue. Um, and I remember even in high school, we'd have the Israel-Palestine assembly where it would be people taking positions on a podium and kind of arguing against one another. And where they chose at the beginning of the conversation was always, you know, it was always contrived to, to kind of lean toward why Israel has a right to exist and Palestinians don't necessarily have a, a voice in the debate. Um, and so I think that for a long time, I've just been too nervous to even broach the subject, um, feeling as though I have to learn all on my own. Um, and I think that finding community in Chicago at the age of 22, um, 23 is, is something that was necessary for me to be able to, to finally sit down and say, I'm not going to be pushed away by all the different people who've told me it's too complicated to understand, but I'm, it's important to all of our ability to struggle for, liberation in the U.S. to also understand liberation struggles around the world. Um, and, yeah. And did you feel, Destiny, that you were able to build relationships, build community uh, across the ocean, across the Great Divide? Yes, I was. Um, I did not know Gorn uh, would give me the opportunity to actually meet Palestinian people firsthand outside of like going through tours and going through different towns and cities and having a tour guide. But besides that, actually meeting Palestinians in um, Ramallah and spending the last two or three days there. Um, and it happened by, you know, just going out and exploring and seeing like different places. Like the last, I want to say the third day to the last day being there, me and Denzel had went in like this gaming room. And when we went in a gaming room, it was almost like something you see on like TV. It's like a game room and it has so many laptops and all of these kids is like playing games. And then it's a snack area. Um, and we go and everybody just runs up to us and like, hey, what's y'all name? But we had to turn on a translator because they didn't really understand English. So we was talking through the, uh, to them like through a translator until like the owner came who spoke English. And then he would like translate for us. And we told them like, you know, we hear where we was from, what was our mission? Like, why were we there? Um, and they had so many questions, but we spent like the last two or three days actually 
building like a strong bond with them. And now to this day, like we still call and check on one another and, you know, just have talks about different things that we may not still understand, even though that we went on a trip or things that they going through now, because during the time that we went, it was it was really, I feel like, perfect timing. Because when we left, it was a lot of uprisings, a lot of bombing, a lot of um, a lot of violence that occurred right after we left. So we were able to like call them and say, hey, you know, are you all okay? Are you still breathing? Do you need access to anything? Is there anything that we can do while we're here? Um, things like that. So I, I feel like that trip made it, building that relationship with them was great. And these were young people. Yes, these was young people. Um, I want to say, yeah, we met people. The youngest one we met was like 14. Um, but through the duration of the three days, we were able to meet their parents, their grandparents, um, their uncles, their aunties. They introduced us to their whole family. Eliza, did you get to see any folks in prison or any, um, did you get to get involved in any abolitionist work around prisons? Yeah, um, we did meet with a, we didn't meet with a group, but we had attended a presentation uh, from a group that works with incarcerated people in Palestine. Um, I was able to ask them about some of the organizing that occurs in Palestinian prisons, because I think it's very, very, just very well coordinated and very well organized, uh, both inside and outside in regards to how they engage with hunger strikes and other tactics. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, I did at moments discuss um, my work with um, folks in Palestine, but sometimes I actually ran into in- interesting issues in regards to racial politics. Um, I think especially in regards to how Black Americans are perceived um, abroad, just with a difference in understanding of how anti-Blackness works at a global scale, um, where I don't think people quite understood the enormity or the, the severity of the situation inside of American prisons um, and the reality of anti-Blackness, um, just where folks were kind of like, oh, yeah, but it's different in America. Whereas I would be walking like into an occupied like Palestinian village, going through like the checkpoints, the little like security wheel that you have to go through, and thinking how similar it was to the feeling of going inside of like an American prison. Um, but yeah, sometimes the conversations just didn't click, which is no fault to the people I was talking to. I think it's just a consequence of white supremacy and anti-blackness. Yeah, I, I'm interested in that. You you all went through checkpoints, right? Yes. Could you, Beth, maybe you could describe the experience of the checkpoint and then each of you could weigh in on what it felt like to you to go through a checkpoint. Um, just like Eliza said, it gave me flashbacks, actually, of being inside prison when, like, you go through one checkpoint, but before you can get to the next actual checkpoint, you either have to wait to the door closes to go through the next one. And because we had such a long line, um, it took us about like 20 minutes to get to one checkpoint because it was one person at a time and you have to wait until a door closes to go to, through the next door. Um, also, the authorities were, it was like two different types of um, authorities. It was like one that was, 
military base and then the other one was like Palestinians. Um, but saying that actually made me visualize like how there's black guards in prisons governing black people. Um, and then you also have a group of um, white guards governing black people as well. Um, so that's the connection I made be between that and then how even just going through like a religious area, how they have checkpoints, reminded me of like just being, like just existing in Chicago and walking down the street and maybe seeing like, um, like the police station on one, on one block and, you know, having to walk past or being harassed or living down the street from a police of um, a police station, and how popularized, overly populated that area may be with polices. Beth, why don't you talk a bit about what it felt like? I mean, partly as an American, and you know you're safe, and partly um, with your background in New York and so on. What was it like going through those checkpoints? Yeah. Something that I was thinking about as we were moving through the checkpoints is that we're not the people who are going to bear the brunt of the violence moving through those checkpoints. And even when we were moving through them, they would mention that we were going through two checkpoints. But if you were Palestinian with a Palestinian passport or like with a Palestinian ID, um, you would be moving through four. And so even just the sheer like performance of security that we were experiencing versus what Palestinians were experiencing is is kind of it's difficult to even conceptualize what that would mean, especially if you're moving through checkpoints on a daily basis. Um, and I think that I'm not someone who's aware of all the security cameras that are on me at every point, but the tour guide would point out in one direction, there'd be a security camera that was using facial recognition technology. Um, and another, it was pointing toward the street and also toward the checkpoint. I mean, like they were kind of like a, almost like a secondary heightened awareness of where the security cameras were placed as a Palestinian that I wasn't kind of keyed into as an American um, that I think was, was eye-opening to then come back to the U S and be more critical and aware of the security that we experienced too, but not to nearly to the same degree that Palestinians are facing in occupied spaces. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting when you go abroad, you can get a different perspective on your own situation. You can see things there that you hadn't seen here. But I'm interested in this, you know, kind of surveillance and this question of, I mean, the contradiction, Eliza, that we feel sometimes when we go to Stateville Prison, or the contradiction, Destiny, that we feel when we go to the youth prisons, we can walk out and they can't walk out. And there's something excruciating about that every time. And I wondered if those feelings ever surfaced while you were in Palestine. There was one checkpoint in particular that stood out to me that I think felt the most like, I mean, Stateville is like a maximum security prison. So there's like a lot of gates that you're going through and that's after getting patted down. And if you're getting patted down as a woman, as the state dictates, it's quite a severe pat down. Um, I can't remember what city it is, but there's a pretty famous mosque in that city. Um, but that checkpoint in particular, it was like a city that was like either like a zone C city surrounded by zone A or maybe vice versa. 
So the security levels there were really different. And I think I felt that exact feeling you're talking about, Bill, when you have that feeling of like that that weight being lifted off of knowing you can walk out, but also that like just really crushing dread that there are people that aren't able to walk out of that situation. And I think one of the things that stuck out to me the most about that area was seeing like a fence surrounding people's houses, but it had those like point like pointy spike things that fences have at the top. But instead of being pointed out, they were pointed inside towards the houses because they were keeping people in the fences. And this was like maybe like four houses within a larger neighborhood. And I had never seen anything like that in my life. Um, And then I think there's like certain things where you like get the phrase open air prison starts to make more and more sense to you. Uh, Why don't you dilate on that phrase, an open air prison? You're talking about the occupied territories. Anybody pick that up. What What does it feel like to be in an open air prison? It's not literally a prison, like the ones Destiny works in or the one that Eliza works in, but it's really an open-air prison. What's that like? Yeah, I'll say it's an open-air prison. What it looks like is, if you can visualize me explaining, of course, it'll be going through some type of door or gate or lock, um, or lock entry, but only having that one way in and, and one way out. With also extra security on top of it, like where you can go, at what time you can go, who can come in, because the scenario that, I mean, the the um, explanation that Eliza just gave um, with the four houses being behind that open air prison, with that, it was, um, like she said, it was four houses, and it was only people who live there can go in there. If they had cousins or friends who wanted to come over or, um, you know, people who they wanted to invite over, they were not allowed to go beyond that, that door to visit. Um, yeah. So if you can, if you can visualize going inside an entry that is built, um, whether it's a gate, whether it's a wall, whether it's metal, having that one way in and a one way out and having extra protection on top or on the sides with video surveillance, watching you and watching your every move and having guards sit there at every at every um, edge of it with armor, so with guns. And you got small kids come that have to wake up today every day and go to sleep. Beth, you want to add to this question of how it felt to be there in this open-air prison? Part of it was also knowing that bodily autonomy was being violated on a daily basis, not for us as visitors, but for people who were living there. I mean, even like the use of administrative detention as a way to remove people from communities was something that was on my mind as we were moving through. And it's it's a it's a tool that allows for Palestinians to be detained without like any kind of understanding of cause, without understanding of how long they'll be held, without um, the ability to really mount a defense case because you don't know what 
you're being held for exactly. And that to me feels like you're living within a prison if you're able to be removed without cause that way and separated from your community and your family. I think it's just alarming. I mean, you can feel it whenever you're walking down the street. How do you bring that message back home, that feeling that you had, which was so intense and probably is fading to some extent now, but how do you bring that feeling back to either the folks you organize with or the population at large? I would say even now, because I still feel it, and, and maybe because I still have that relationship with some Palestinians, um, and I still follow like you know different things that's going on in Palestine, but I would say no matter where you are, you never have to degrade a group of people or um, dehumanize a group of people for for you to have a decent life or you to live or to breathe or to just see. Like no one has to be harmed. No one has to um, live under those type of conditions for another group of people to have to. As you were speaking, I was thinking about a film that was a finalist for an Academy Award last year called The Present. And it's about a guy in the occupied territory who has to go to buy a present for his wife for their anniversary. He takes his young daughter with him. And it's a 25-minute film. It's a short film. But one of the things that the brilliant filmmaker did was what he called guerrilla filmmaking. That is, he actually filmed non-actors going through the, the checkpoints. And it was so humiliating it was so banal, it was so ordinary in the way that people were brutalized and kind of, de, you know, humiliated. And here's this guy, the only person in the scene, the only two people in the scene who were actors was the act, the man going to get a present and his daughter. Everyone else was just there. And uh, I think that kind of up close and personal thing is important. And I just wonder if there's ways that you think we can bring this either things you've read or things that we should we should spend more attention getting into our, our own collectives, our own organizing spaces, but also the population at large. I think for me, it's something that has felt very difficult to bring back home because, not to be pessimistic, but it's like even with issues where like the state is engaged in war with black people in our own country and like people don't care that prisons don't have access to clean drinking water or any of the other enormous offenses that are occurring on our own in our, in our own land and then it's kind of like i i struggle to even get like people that i organize with that aren't doing prisoner support work to be in contact with and in community with incarcerated people that are an hour away from where they live and then so it's like kind of like I'm struggling to do that and then struggling. And then and then the idea of like trying to get folks to care about international solidarity, which we should, feels like another hurdle. So I feel like when I came back, my main focus, and it's something I'm still working on because coming back was exhausting, was sharing the trip and the experience with the people inside. Because um, that just felt like a first priority and like the first people my mind went to for how strongly experiencing like how the first people I think would have the greatest impact from learning about what I experienced there. You know, I think Eliza has highlighted a, 
basic contradiction of being an American or a European, a first world country, trying to build solidarity with third world freedom struggles, right? And the contradiction is so powerful. And I, and I really appreciate the way you articulated that, Eliza. But what do the others of you think? I mean, Destiny, uh, Beth, how hard is it to bring the international perspective when the urgency at our own doorstep seems so sometimes overwhelming? I definitely think it's imperative to the work that we do on a daily basis. Um, I think how we integrate that is still something I really struggle with. Um, and I think one thing that I was thinking about while we were on the trip is that Paltrek is a is a tour that's usually offered in university spaces. And it's so rare that there are organized trips to Palestine for people who are not in these highly like elitist institutional spaces. And I mean, as I feel like it has been spoken about on the podcast, the university student isn't necessarily going to be the insiders of revolution. They're not going to be the ones that necessarily are going to bring down capitalism and colonialism. And, you know, like the, the people who need to be part of these conversations and going on these tours are those who feel the stakes on a daily basis and are willing to put their lives on the line and know that what is, is at the other end is freedom for everyone, including people in Chicago. Um, so I think that trying to think more about what it means to make these spaces of, of travel and of building solidarity around the world accessible beyond these kind of normative like intellectual spaces, I think is, is definitely on the forefront of my mind. And we've tried to talk about like what it would look like to form another delegation of people from dissenters and people from real um, going back to Palestine and Cuba and to other places of, of resistance movements and um, finding ways to to keep that energy part of the movements in Chicago as well. Um, but but what that looks like on the day-to-day -day is, is still hard to say. Absolutely. It's definitely hard to think about, um, not to think about, but to like, you know, fulfill that, how do I bring this back to my community? Um, or to the people who I am in community with that understands the struggle and understand the need for um, it to be, for people to be aware of it. But my first thought was, because there are a group of Palestinians here in Chicago that, um, you know, do marches downtown and connect with different people. Um, so my first thought was to connect with them um, and share like the different things that we experienced while being there. And as we plan on another trip to go back, also have their input um, and maybe see if we can take them with us um, to go back as well. I mean, I think it's really important. One of the things that Israel has been so successful at is number one, working through fundamentalist Christian churches and also through the black church getting this idea that Israel is the only democracy in the area, the idea that the the historical notion of the chosen people and all that, as well as the kind of trips that they do with college kids, fully paid for. Were you ever approached uh, for that, Beth, when you were in college? <laughs> Not by the college trips. Um, I've been hearing of a birth rate my entire life, and my uncle always called it a date. <laughs> but it's the way 
it's funny because our youngest son, Chesa, when he was in college, he, he, he called Bernadine and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to get this free trip to Israel. It's a birthright trip. And she said, you're not going? Are you out of your mind? And he said, you know, I know, I know it's a lie. I know the propaganda, but hey, it's a free trip. And I'll, I'll ask pointed questions. She, her head exploded and he never went. But, but it does seem to me that there's something valuable when you're talking about Palestinian humanizing the situation and seeing the reality of an open-air prison, the reality of checkpoints, the reality of apartheid, that it matters that you get folks to see it, that you go mobilize people to see it. And, and that's what I hear, part of what I hear you saying. So I, I, I think we should keep talking about that over the next months and years because I think we have a big responsibility to change the perception of ordinary people about what's going on there. The, the myth-making machine is so powerful that it's kind of, it's up to us to put our hands in the air and raise a flag, I mean, it seems to me. There's another thing I'd like to just get into a bit, which is, you know, I'm thinking historically, one of the things that, that we experienced when we were your age and younger was that the flashpoint for internationalism was Vietnam. I mean, there was, everybody had to get, had to face and take a stand on the question of Vietnam. And part of our responsibility, we felt at the time, was humanizing the Vietnamese, that they had a human face. They weren't the, the racist language that was used to describe them. That was not right. And if you saw people, they have a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, hopes, dreams, experiences, that makes a huge difference. And the parallel I'm thinking of, Destiny, Eliza, Beth, well, the parallel I'm thinking of is that we have the same problem with Stateville Prison. Those are just behind the wall. You can't see them. They don't, they're not three-dimensional people. They did a bad thing. That's why they're there or whatever. Same with the kids in, in youth prisons. So I just I just wonder if in our, in our work, is there... Isn't there a way to integrate this notion of humanization? Just like I think the dissenters are saying, militarism at home and abroad is the same, it's the same kettle of fish. But humanization at home and abroad also matters. You can't do what we do to people in Joliet, Illinois, at Stateville, or in Palestine if they're actually full human beings, just like you and me. What do you think? You actually got me thinking about a, we were reading Asada in a book club all together, actually. Um, and there's this quote from her where she talks about we need to humanize Puerto Ricans and like the, the way in which not knowing about Puerto Rican freedom fighters was also a way in which it enabled the violence that the U.S. Yeah. So, I mean, that feels really relevant to me. And something she said was, once you understand something about the history of a people, their heroes, their hardships, and their sacrifices, it's easier to struggle with them to support their struggle. A lot of people in this country, people who live in other places, have no faces. And this is the way the U.S. government wants it to be. They figure that as long as people have no faces, the country has no forum. America will not protest when they send in Marines to wipe them out. And that, to me, just feels like part of the charge of going to Palestine as well. It's to give faces and forms to spaces that we in the U.S. are, are intentionally not given. 
And that's part of what enables this continued investment in the military complex in Israel and what has given rise to what, like the third most violent military in the world. And yeah, that that definitely is part of, I think, what I'm As long as you can put the Palestinian people into one of two giant baskets, they're either a bunch of starving, helpless refugees or they're a bunch of terrorists. And if these are the two stereotypes that get larger than life, then you can't see them as human in the way you're human. And I think that's played a huge role in the United States, get overwhelmingly um, arming and building up this, uh, this small country that's not democratic. The myth that we're the only democracy in the area, what could be further from the truth? Apartheid is not democracy. You know, open air prisons is not democracy. So I think this really creates, a, this tension is there. I don't know if you feel this, but I increasingly feel that we're winning the moral argument in this country, that we're winning the, the large argument about Israel's role in the world, but it hasn't done enough to change policy or politics. I wonder how you're reading this. I mean, here we are, all this stuff going on with Janine, all the stuff with the Supreme Court in Israel. What do you make of it? Is, is, is the attitude changing? Uh, one of my favorite things that we heard um, from a lot of Palestinians when we were there is we were traveling with a group of law students. So often they would ask about how they could make change, like how Palestinians could affect change through the court system or through the legal system. And quite often the response back was that they've lost all faith in the Israeli court system um, because it was has never served them and it was never made to serve them. And I mean, that's how I feel about the American legal system. Um, not to say that as Americans, we don't have a responsibility to put pressure, especially on the amount of funding that goes towards militarism and um, particularly towards Israel. But also, I do think we need to think creatively about if that pressure needs to be through legal means and through the uh, electoral system. Um, and so hearing folks say that abroad was really affirming and thinking about how change can happen and how we can impact change. Um, especially as these systems were, are working as intended. Yeah, it definitely felt like an irony that we saw over and over again, where people were, Israelis we saw protesting on the highway, calling for democracy and safeguarding democracy in the face of like a fascist government. And it just felt like such a confused argument when we look at the experience of Palestinians under the so-called democracy fighting to defend their homes from demolitions or, or just like, you know, planet access healthcare and education in like area C under like Israeli control. And it just, yeah, I mean, it just feels like a, a conversation in the U S as well of this democracy, this so-called democracy that we fight for on a daily basis when Trump was elected has always incarcerated people has always, you know, tortured people into confessions for crimes, for has always like written a definition of a crime to incarcerate and target and surveil and criminalize black people. So it's just, it feels like we're kind of in two different places in the world where we're clinging to this idea of democracy that's just not capable of being realized with, I guess, the foundation that we have at the moment. 
Well, I mean, it's partly this, what, what notion of democracy are you talking about? If you're talking about a formal kind of tweedledum or tweedledumber kind of democracy, or are you talking about actual participation of people in the decisions that affect their lives? And clearly, that democracy does not exist and has not existed, not only from the beginning with, you know, encoding slavery and then white supremacy into every legal definition of the country and also encoding genocide. Um, so this is all part of our legacy, which is the exact opposite of democracy. But this idea that somehow you have this little formal moment where you can vote between, you know, one horrible person or another, um, you never get to vote for should there be wars or should there, or, or should capitalists be able to make all this money? I mean, that's never on the ballot, right? It's always... You know, the way Mona Khalidi used to say it when we were talking about it during the first Gulf War, she would say the debate in the American Congress is not but whether we should destroy Iraq. The debate is should we strangle them or should we bomb them? That was the only debate, right? And that's when you realize that democracy has a lot of meanings. But I think what folks like us have to re remember and keep pushing is it's the extent that democracy means anything it means people participating in the decisions that affect their lives. It doesn't mean simply voting for somebody who will take the, the burden off of you. Um, that's not it. The main thing is I want to make sure you all are saying what you want to say. Oh, I have another question. Here's another question it just popped into my head. You're young people, and I was curious if your parents were concerned about you going to Palestine. Eliza, you're laughing. What, what did your parents think about you going to Palestine? Well, I've been, I have been wanting to go to Palestine since I was a high schooler and I learned that the Panthers used to take solidarity trips. So I think, I think my mom felt it coming, <laughs> um, but I think she's still, I mean, even with the work I do, when I first started writing to incarcerated people, she had a lot of skepticism, but I started going inside a prison at least once a week. She was like, ah. Um, and so all that still didn't prepare for me wanting to go to Palestine. Um, so the first thing I had to do was like get my SIM card sorted so that I could call her, um, or else she would have freaked out. Um, but I of course couldn't buy it in the airport because of BDS. Um, so it was like, it was like hard to explain to my mom, like, no, I had to wait to get the SIM card and like, I promise I'm fine. Um, but no, she was, I think she's slowly starting to understand more. There's nothing she could really do about it. So, yeah. So tell folks, because you use the word BDS, uh, tell folks what BDS is. Cause I, I was just, we were out in a very hot part of California and we had to have a lot of sparkling water. So we <laughs> wanted to buy one of those, um, things where you, Oh, the soda stream. Yeah, the soda stream. And, of course, Bernadine wouldn't let anybody buy soda stream <laughs> because we're not buying shit from Israel, right? Fuck um, yeah, Bernadine. <laughs> she was right on it. But um, but so tell people what BDS is just so they know. Um, so BDS is Boycott, Divest, Sanction. It's a, um international and also hyper-local campaign focused on intentional boycotts of um, – products that are either like have factories in occupied territory or work with the Israeli government or make military technology. Um, but, and pretty much anything that uh, disrupts the lives 
of Palestinian people. Uh, yes, we, we were lucky enough to meet with the BDS folks, which was like a really, really great presentation. One thing that I thought was super interesting from that presentation was that they were like, we don't know where the fuck these lists have come from. <laughs> that list of these companies that we've banned, we have never touched a list in our life. I love it. They're like, we're not talking about individual action here. Like we're talking about like ending massive like state contracts, like federal contracts with companies that are complicit in the occupation. So, and who did you meet with, Beth? Who did you meet with? I can't remember the name of the organizer. He's one of the founders, one of the co-founders of BDS. We could pull it up, I think. We have it on the itinerary. It was it was NIDA, meaning with BDS, NIDA, N-I-D-A-A. Eliza talked about her mom uh, and her fear of her going there. Uh, what about the others of you? Did, you? did your mom freak out or anybody, anybody in your family try to stop you? For me, yeah, my grandmother. Um, when I told my mom, my mom really didn't like fully understand until my grandmother had a conversation with her and she called me back like, no, you're not going. <laughs> and I was like, Ma, you gotta understand like the work that I'm doing. Like, is like why wouldn't I go? Like this is this is all a part of the work. But my grandmother, she called me every day from when I first told her all the way until I got on the plane. And she tried to like have like deep conversations with me, like, no, don't go, don't go. And she she even explained to me, <laughs> she was like, I'm just, she even cried and was like, please don't go. I don't want you to go. I was like, I'm going to be all right. Like, do you want the names of everybody who I'm going to be with, their numbers? Like, I'm all right. I'm okay. Was she worried about you getting hurt violently? Like that was the kind of fear she had? Yes. Yeah, she was worried about me like, not coming back and then a situation happened where i stayed for like a day so that really like took her through the roof it's interesting because again that's part of the stereotype that's a violent part of the world where it's here you know we're used to mm -hmm. it right i mean this is just the way we are how about you beth what about your family no it's literally that i remember in reading like the question of palestine thinking about like the orient as like this space of kind of mysticism and unknowing and violence and that was definitely how i think my whole family approached the idea of me going abroad and i it, like going to to palestine and i remember my mom was the first one to to kind of try to talk me out of it and then she called on my brother to try to talk me out of it and then she had my dad try to talk out of it and I'm like you can't like send people to me one by one to try to take me out um and I'm a little worried that she'll listen to this podcast and hear me talking, talking. but are they are they are their attitudes changing do you think do you think your going had an impact I think it's it's added to our conversations I think from the beginning they were like oh Beth is going on a propaganda tour so I think it's the other ones that are a propaganda tour that's what's crazy that's the wild thing is they acknowledge that birthright is a is a propaganda tour and yet they they can't imagine that a palestinian-led tour would be anything but propaganda you you bring two things to mind one is that um you know one is that when you as young people get involved and get passionate and are committed and the people who love you your grandmother your mother it makes them think it stops them for a minute and i remember meeting with the vietnamese and we had a lot of things we wanted to say, but they kept saying, talk to your Republican parents. 
you know, get them to be against the war, right? I mean, you guys are all militant in the streets. Tell your goddamn Republican parents to do But that was one thing. But the other thing that comes to my mind is on the 10th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, Bernadine, as a law professor, organized a trip to Rwanda where they worked with NGOs around the reconciliation and so on. But the kids from Northwestern Law School who were going to go, all their parents were hysterical that they were going into Africa, into this violent scene. So one of the kids, one of the enterprising students, got on the Canadian website warning Canadian citizens about coming to Chicago. It sounded like an absolute bloodbath, you know. Don't go to Chicago, and if you do, don't talk to anybody. You know, meanwhile, that's where we live. We get along there, you know. And what was going on in Rwanda had nothing to do with street crime, that level of problem. That's true for you guys, too. It's not, you know, it's it's bizarre and different. Either any of the three of you have something that you feel like really you have to say to the, an American audience. Say it. Go ahead, Eliza. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on something we all talked a lot about when we were there, which is just like, the um the infrastructure of colonialism um and how heavily that is exported from america and american infrastructure um like we saw a lot of like advertisements for new housing or just like new housing being built that looked just like the gentrification housing you see in america like that ugly gray with like the pop-out panel um and it was like seeing that and being like oh jesus christ that's not just gentrification housing that's like imperialist housing um and then like the like fucking oh my god the goddamn uh the rest stops there was a rotating mcdonald's logo on one side it was english and on the other side it was hebrew and i was like okay that's like that's like the picture of colonialism right there. The rest stops were so American, the highway systems, like all the cranes, like the like fucking, like the construction uh, vehicles, the cat. I was like, I can't look at cat the same. Like so much of the infrastructure was American infrastructure. And then you come home and you're like, oh yeah, I'm also heavily colonized with all this bullshit around me. It was just normalized. Exactly. Exactly. And, and we take it for granted. But, you know, we talked about this in our prison work, you know, same architect who makes a place like Stateville Prison makes public housing, makes public schools in the cities. Right. So it's all part of one aesthetic and the aesthetic is cruel and overwhelming. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing I, you made me remember is during the first Iraq war, some news person was interviewing a sergeant who was coming home after two years of duty. And he said, the sergeant said to this American reporter, well, we didn't accomplish everything we wanted, but when we got here, there was nothing here, nothing. And you're like, oh, and you guys built a McDonald's and you built, you know, some, some track housing and now it's a, a civilized country. I mean, it's amazing the arrogance that goes with that. It's just, Overwhelming sometimes. All right, I got another question for you. Unless you have something on Palestine, Roxana. Yeah, actually, um, I mean, I, I know some folks who have done the birthright uh, trips and um, <laughs> with some uh, not-so-awesome results. 
And um, so I guess I'm just wondering, you know, since you guys are all about the age of people who are going on those trips, um, you know, if you encounter someone who's considering going on, on a trip, um, what do you say to them? Um, to either ask them to not go or, or to at least give them a frame of reference if they are insistent on going. Yeah, I, I feel like I would ask, like, what is their understanding of Palestine? Like, what is their understanding to begin with before they even become propagandized by the tours? What are they kind of coming in with prior knowledge of? And trying to begin with those myths that I feel like we've all grown up with, too. And we've all had to unlearn to come to this place of, I mean, I don't think we, we know everything and that we've come to this enlightened point of understanding, but more just what kinds of things have we outworked or begun to outwork ourselves that we can kind of build a conversation around for people going on birthright. Um, I also think that part of it is just a vacation for people. And I think just showing the gravity of that choice, it's not just a vacation, but something that's part of a much larger um a much larger uh, colonial project, I think is important too. Even though that's kind of a buzzkill, I feel like it's not fun to be like that. You know, I, I've often thought that, uh, I mean, I think you're so right about that, that, that you can have a casual attitude and say, what the hell? But then ask yourself, would it be cool to take a, a kind of a, a trip through the prisons in America just to see, you know, just to have a tourist uh, kind of thing. And in some ways, that's what high schools do. I mean, scare them straight and all that stuff. And, and it's a little bit sick. But I think that it's very important to to make the point to young people that this is not neutral, that it's not natural, and that um, you have to take seriously your own role in perpetuating this kind of madness. Um, I think that's one of the, you know, the things that you know, I was really taken aback by, um, by those trips is the power of, of, of them. First of all, so many, and I mean, even Zaid, the fact that he was viewing it as well, it's a free trip, you know, um, because that's, that's what, uh, these family friends, they, um, they were like, well, it's a free trip. You know, how can I, how can I say no to this free vacation? And, um, and then one of them literally came back waving an IDF flag. And, and I mean that literally and not even understanding what IDF meant, uh, you know, uh, to him, it was just like, well, these are my bros. And I met these guys and they were so cool and they're just defending their country. And it was just like, do you know what that means? And trying to have that conversation after the fact. And, um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, getting young people, especially in these small groups and, and like, you know, in a concentrated amount of time and feeding them all, all of these like myths about, you know, about your people, about your country. And it's powerful. You know, besides the strategic interest that the U S has in Israel and the kind of um, the cold war origins of a lot of that, I do think that there's a deep psychological partnership around white supremacy and around this myth of a land without people for a people without land. So who are the pilgrims? They're people who needed to have freedom. And there was no one here anyway, so what's the diff, you know? And the same with the myth of Israel, that somehow there was no one here. So we, And to this day, 
we had somebody on the podcast, a wonderful, wonderful woman, Fida Yuris, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And she's a Palestinian Israeli citizen. But she says nobody calls them Palestinians. They call them Arabs. You know, and that's an insulting way to refer to people who are actually the native people of the land, you know. Some of them among the native people. Anyway, I wonder how much that powerful, powerful American myth that somehow Europeans came seeking freedom, and since there was no one here, vast empty spaces, we did, you know, that's, and that myth is exactly the Israeli founding myth, you know. Um, so I wonder if that's not something that we have to kind of take on. We should write novels about it and stuff. So listen, I have one other thing that's off the question of Palestine a bit, but I'd like to ask you, which is, I used to do this when I taught school. I taught little kids. And I, I'm sitting here looking at your names, Eliza, Beth, Destiny, Roxana. I thought I would ask you um, what the story is of your, of, of your name. What's, how did you get your first name? What are you named for? Who did it? Your grandmother, your mother, um, a midwife? How did you get your first name and what's its significance? Bill, you, this, this, you just made me have a flashback going through um, coming back from Palestine and they asked me like ridiculous questions. Like, like how did you, like how much is in your savings account? How did you have enough to come here and visit? What? Um, you know, yeah, outrageous question. Outrageous, um, whereas my question is benign. How did you get your first name? Um, and, and what did it mean to your mom or whoever gave you that name? Yeah. So I got my first name. My my father wanted to name me Destiny. My mom wanted to name me after her, which is Cerinthia. Um, but my father wanted to name me Destiny. And his, his, his reasoning for that... Um, was when he seen me when I came out, I was just smiling. I was light bright. And he thought of like, you know, this is my future. So he said he wanted to name me Destiny. Beautiful, beautiful. How about you, Eliza? Uh, my mom, she she gave all her children really white names, um, which is it was very confusing to me because she's my black parent, but she really loves Pride and Prejudice. Um, but she didn't, she did not want me to be an Elizabeth. She was like very distinctly like, you're Eliza. But yeah, Pride and Prejudice, Prejudice is her favorite book. So I was named after, I've never read it, but I was named after the, the I guess maybe one of the characters. I don't know, maybe the main, I don't know. <laughs> and maybe you and Beth are related because she was named after Pride and Prejudice too. But the other character, maybe. Beth, how'd you get your first name? I'm actually just Beth. Me and Beth, if you were just talking about this, we were, we've always been asked if our phone name is Elizabeth and we have to tell people we're nothing but Beth every single time. Yeah. But I, I feel like my parents were just like, let's name Beth after every relative in the family because my phone name, should I get my full government name on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I won't give everyone absolutely. all the, drop absolutely. your social security gotta number too. Gotta have the full name. <laughs> Um, like, <laughs> I just am named after every relative in my family at different parts of my family. But yeah, no one can make a choice. <laughs> really? Cool. That's great. Roxana, how'd you get your first name or what does it mean? Um, so 
my dad, um, I don't know, I think he really wanted boys. <laughs> um, because he, he gave both me and my sister, who is actually named Elizabeth. <laughs> um, he named us both after like figures he had read about. Um, I'm named after a character in apparently uh, like some epic poem. Uh, and this woman who whose husband is taken away in uh, in some like big fight, some big battle. And uh, someone comes to her and says, you know, are you going to raise an army uh, to go get him back? And she says, I won't need an army. <laughs> And, and he, yeah, I remember him telling me that, you know, he's like, that's what I want you to be like. I don't want you to be strong and to not, not have to like rely on others just to be like that, uh, that forceful and a force of nature. And I, and I was like, okay, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. We're each our own red army. Um, you know, I've done this exercise from the moment I taught kindergarten and it can stretch on for weeks and months as kids try to figure out from their parents. And we had, when I first was doing it, we always have names from the Bible. We always have names from the Quran. One year we had a Lolita from Lolita Lebrun, the freedom fighter from Puerto Rico. Marcus from Marcus Garvey. You know, um, my favorite was uh, uh, so, some somebody's name was named after a character in the Archie comics because the dad, it was his ideal of womanhood. Veronica in Archie comics was his ideal of womanhood. But, and, and, Apropos of naming after a man, Bernadine, always people, everybody misspells her name. It's B-E-R-N-A-R-D-I-N-E because her father's name was Bernard, and he wanted a boy, and he named her Bernard Dean. And so she gets her name misspelled and mispronounced all the time, but that's all right. Anyway, I just wanted to check that out because I love your names. And not only do I love your names, I love you. I think you guys are a force of nature. Every one of you is your own red army. And, uh, and let's keep rising and let's keep, uh, hanging out together. Really appreciate your time on this. Wait, Bill, oh, what God. about your name? My, okay. You can't I escape it. My name is, uh, my name is William Charles Ayers, the most honky, what could be worse? My brothers are Thomas and my other brothers, Richard and John Stephen. Ugh, the worst. But the story, <laughs> the story still, every name has a story. And my story was my parents were young. They were fairly newly married. And my mom had a rich uncle who had no offspring. And he said to all of his nieces and nephews, if you'll name someone after me, I'll pay their way through college. And she had no money, and she said, shit. His name was Herman Gook. So she didn't name me Herman Gook. She named me William Charles. There's always a story, even if it's a negative story. So you can call me Herman if you want to pay it. Pay me for it. College tuition. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had a cat named Herman. Well, I mean, Herman's not that bad, but Herman Gook, I mean, my God. That's the worst. Anyway, listen, y'all, thank you so much. I'll see you all next week for sure. I really, really admire each of you, mm -hmm. and I'm so, <clears throat> I'm so pleased that you all went to Palestine. I'm pleased you're going to carry that torch and carry it into all of our work because we need it and we need that presence. We need you. 
So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Bill. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can toward joy and justice, peace and freedom. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Pallas Shaw. And thanks to Bernadine Dorn. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an embodiment of international solidarity. Write that poem of resistance. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.